Well, it's good to be back from my vacation. Missed you guys, missed the church, and really missed teaching. I just love doing this. It's, I just come alive when I teach. It's really a joy. So, having said that it's really a joy, we're about to tackle one of the most misunderstood, least appreciated, and in some cases absolutely intentionally ignored passages of Scripture. So uh, fasten your seatbelts, grab something stable, and be prepared to be confronted. Are you ready for some confrontation? This is a really, really hard passage to, to uh, submit to because it's a passage about submission. It's Romans 13. Let's read it together. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but rather for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of some possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Okay, what's your emotional reaction to reading that? <laughs> it causes me fear just reading it. Let me say something about this passage before we dig into it. There are a few passages in the New Testament that speak to the issue of followership. You see, in most of the relationships in our lives, moment by moment even, scene by scene, day by day, we are either one of two things. We're either leading or we're following someone who's leading. Parents over children, bosses over employees, mutually submitted to one another, as Paul talks about in Ephesians. So most of the time, we're either following or we're leading. And the Bible has a great deal to say about both leading and following. This is a passage about following, and there's a couple of others in the New Testament. But there are far more passages about leading than there are about following. And the standards on leaders are higher than the standards on followers. Are you with me? So today we're going to look at followership, but you can't look at it in the absence of understanding that leaders are held to standards too. Right? So this isn't just one side of the story. But let's look at this side of the story. Context is everything. There are two contexts which we must address to receive the full measure of truth 
possible from this passage. The first has to do with our present context as it concerns our respect for authority. Does that make sense? When we read this, we don't read it from some neutral position. We carry with us our own assumptions and our own understandings and our own prejudices and our own culture. So reading a passage without understanding your own culture and what has made you the person that you are means you're not going to receive everything that that passage has to say. So we need to understand our context, historically, culturally, the nation in which we live, the time in which we live. We need to understand that when we read this passage, or we won't read this passage correctly. And the second context is the historic context for those to whom Paul is writing. You see, the Bible can't say to us what it didn't mean to them. The first principle of understanding the Bible, what they call exegesis, is to understand that Paul was writing to a particular group of people at a particular time in a particular culture and history which was their own. And unless we understand that, we can misinterpret what he said. It cannot mean to us what it didn't mean to them then. You with me? So understanding that this historic context in which Paul is writing is very, very important to extracting the message for us today from the passage. Well, let's begin with our own historic context. Some of you people came to adulthood in the 1960s. Is there anyone who came to adulthood in the 1960s? Your teenage years were in the 60s. Come on, cop to it. Cop to it, people. Come on. Okay. 60s are far more important to us than the music or the crazy bell-bottom jeans. Something happened in the 60s which has changed our American culture forever. You see, since the 1960s, America and most of the Western world has been marinated in a spirit of disrespect for authority, both secular and spiritual. The war in Vietnam and the Nixon-Watergate scandals resulted in a generation which was suspicious and disrespectful of those in positions of secular authority. I can remember it. I can remember it vividly. We called our culture the establishment and we were anti-establishment. We preached disrespect for authority. There were militant groups that bombed buildings and assaulted uh, police stations and engaged in civil disobedience considering it to be the right thing to do. Now sadly when my generation came of age and we began to become teachers we taught that spirit of disrespect for authority. We taught that spirit of essentially rebellion. We institutionalized this thinking into our culture and now we've had a few generations who've been marinated in it. On January 16th of 2017, Matthew Harrington wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review. And in it, he quoted the results of what's called the Edelman Trust Barometer, which is a survey done every year with more than 33,000 interviewees in 28 countries. Now, this is a pretty thorough survey, isn't it? This isn't just about America, you see. This is mostly about the Western world. Edelman had been doing this trust survey for 17 years. 
The survey measures the level of public trust in government, business, media, and non-governmental organizations, and those are usually organized for some humanitarian charitable purpose. In other words, the NGOs in most people's eyes are the good guys. You with me? You're not? I'll explain it again. NGOs, non-governmental organizations. They're, they're things like um, the Red Cross, uh, um, World Vision, uh, Greenpeace, etc., etc., etc. They're organizations with a particular purpose and they're usually charitable. And in most of society, they're considered the good guys. Make sense? So you've got, you've got government, business, media, and the good guys. Mr. Harrington notes that for the first time in 17 years, the public's trust is down in all four categories. In the previous 17 years, it would be down in a few categories, but up in, in one of, at least one of them. This is the first time public trust in all these 28 countries, 33,000 interviewees representing all these countries, this is their trust level in all four categories, and it's down in every single category, including the good guys. And he, he uh, says in his article, quote, we're living in an era of backlash against authority. I think that's obvious. Just look at the political debate. Just look at the way people behave. And here's the sad truth. The Christian church is not immune from this culture of disrespect. Do you think we are? That we're not subject to this? That we're not influenced by the comments of our friends and neighbors and what we see on television and how we speak about our leaders? The church is not immune to this culture of disrespect. Ask any pastor. A friend of mine referred to leading in the church as herding cats. You ever tried herding cats? So in view of this fact, Romans chapter 13 is extremely relevant to us. And it's difficult to accept. Because we have been raised in that culture of disrespect for authority. And this is our historical context for this chapter. Now let's look at the historical context for those to whom Paul was writing. When Paul wrote this chapter, he was living under the rule of the Roman em Emperor Nero. What's Nero famous for? He fiddled, he played his fiddle, legend has it, while Rome burned. He murdered his mother because she became a nuisance to him. He is believed to have started the fires that burned in Rome because those fires conveniently cleared the way for his extravagant new palace, which he couldn't build without clearing the way first. So he cleared the way by burning and killing all these people that were in the way of his new home. He made Christians the scapegoat for the fire and burned them alive. He's considered by most historians to be the most infamous of Roman emperors and he is particularly known for his persecution of Christians. This is the guy who's in leadership 
when Paul writes these words. What? What is going on? Paul is telling his listeners that they are to respect and obey this guy. What is going on? How can he say something like this in view of how Nero is persecuting Christians? Well, there's two keys to understanding Paul's reasoning. And the first is to understand that Paul knows that our secular authorities are there by God's will. Several places in the passage he said, God established these people over you. He put them in the place in which they are. Now, you know, this, just to be slightly political here for a minute. Half the country is thrilled about the results of the election and the other half is enraged and in mourning. Someone once said, in a democracy, the people get the government they deserve because they elected it. And we always think that God puts people in authority over us because he wants to bless us. What if he wants to discipline us? What if we've wandered so far away from him that the only way to get our attention is to give us the choice, our own bad choices of who's going to govern us? What if this person governing us is actually God's will? Not for blessing, but for discipline. Because that's what we really need in order to come back to him. Maybe we've wandered so far off that we've kind of left God behind and out of the equation. Paul knows that the secular authorities we are under are there by God's will. The second key is to understand the depth of what Paul said when he said this. We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You see, what Paul's doing here is he's acknowledging that God can work through our benefit, even through an evil leader as well as a godly one. See, under a godly leader, we experience material blessings, and we experience freedom, and we experience ease and convenience. And these are all a form of blessing. They're the form of blessing that we most often call a blessing. Our blessing is defined by our culture, and our culture is materialistic. Therefore, when things go well materially and in terms of wealth and income, we consider ourselves blessed. Under an ungodly leader, we experience discipline, trials, and suffering. Well, these aren't blessings in themselves, but if we persevere through them, we grow in character and hope. 
And these are spiritual blessings. Let's just be honest with ourselves for a moment. Which blessings are more important in eternity? Material blessings and ease, convenience and freedom, or character? Which do you choose in the light of eternity? Not right now. No, 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 no. Guys, come on. Character. Close your eyes for a minute. We're going to do a little demonstration here. Ready? I want you to pretend that you've been sitting in this room in stillness and silence for a year. Now I want you to pretend that you've been sitting in this room in stillness and silence for a hundred years. Now you've been sitting in stillness and silence in this room for a thousand years. And you have not heard any sound in a thousand years. Close your eyes. You heard that slap, didn't you? Now you've been sitting in this room 10,000 years after that slap. Open your eyes. In that time of sitting in silence for 20,000 years, that slap occupied more time proportionally in that 20,000 years than your years on this earth. That's your life in eternity. So which is more important? The obvious things we call blessings in that little tiny slap which was your life measured against eternity or the character that's developed during that little slap that you're going to take to heaven and enjoy forever. Which is more important? We also glory in our sufferings because we know that Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. In this hope, it does not disappoint us. It doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom has been given to us. Trials come and trials go. What are you getting out of it? The trial's not important. 
What are you getting out of it? Are you appropriating that trial for your spiritual benefit or are you ignoring it and trying to get out of it as fast as possible and therefore missing everything that God wants to build into you in that crisis? Do you really want to miss the opportunity? See, look, when we obey a bad leader, we're not obeying a bad leader. We're obeying God. We're exercising trust in him and his ability to teach us and care for us and mature us in that situation in a way that couldn't be accomplished in any other situation. Guys, I'm, I'm 67 years old. I've been a Christian quite a long time. It all boils down to this. Do I trust him with things that really matter to me? Do I trust him? And I've found that every crisis that comes along, and there's been quite a few in my life, they're there as opportunities for me to trust him. And the question is not, why is this happening? The question is, what, Father, are you trying to accomplish in the middle of this crisis inside me? What are you trying to build inside me? Who do I, who do I get to become? And oftentimes, the spirit of rebellion just gets in the way of that process. This should not be happening to me. This is not fair. God does not know what he's doing. He has somehow gotten this wrong. Why doesn't he get me out of this right now? Where is his love? Where are you now, Father, in the middle of this difficulty? And what does he say? He says, trust me. And man, that's a hard thing to do. Okay. That was the worst part. Now let's get to the good part. What are the exceptions to obeying bad authority, bad secular authority. What are the exceptions? Because there are exceptions. There's times when God says, I do not expect you to obey these people. And they're in the Bible. We, we've got some, some good illustrations here that, that give us principles. Yes, you should obey God instead of man. When man tells, when God tells you to do something, and people, and, you know, when God tells you to do something, it's not sin. By definition, he won't tell you to sin. The Bible says he does not lead us into temptation. So it can't be sin when he tells us to do something. If he tells us to do it, you do it. Irrespective of what the secular authority says, we obey God rather than man when he has told us to do it. 
When the governing authority requires us to do what God's word says is wrong to do? No. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were ordered by the king to bow down and worship a false god. And they refused the king's command to bow down and worship a pagan idol. And you remember what they said. And here's the attitude. This, this, this is the attitude of godly submission. They said to the king, we will not do that. And our God will take care of us. And even if he doesn't, we will die and we will not die bowing down to that thing. See, they were prepared to pay the punishment of disobedience, but they are not going to bow down to a false god. And they said, well, you know, our God may very well save us. And circumstances sure didn't look like it. Throwing them into the, the hottest furnace that is humanly possible to build. But even if God doesn't save us from this crisis, and even if we perish in this crisis, we are not going to do what is wrong, what God has said not to do. Daniel 3, verses 13 to 18. And the one that Mark mentioned, when the governing authority requires us to not do what God's word says to do, we say no. We are going to do what God's word says to do. You remember Peter and the other uh, disciples in front of the Sanhedrin. They commanded him. They were the religious authorities. They had authority over him. And they said, you stop talking about Jesus. You stop preaching this stuff. And people, the day is coming in this country where we will not be allowed to speak about Jesus. And if you think I'm wrong, you just look at the trends. I know a nurse that risked her job by asking to pray for a patient. And if the patient had gone to her supervisor and ratted her out and said she wanted to pray to Jesus for me, she would have lost her job. And Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. And they went ahead and did it. And we're here today because they went ahead and did it. So there's times to say, no, you're asking me to stop doing something God has told me to do. Or you're telling me to do something God told me not to. And in that case, I will simply take your punishment and accept that. But I'm not going to give you my behavior. I'm not going to give you what you want. When a Christian disobeys an evil government, he should accept the punishment if he cannot flee. If you can avoid it, you avoid it. But if you can't avoid it, you take your stand and you suffer it. How many of, let's just do this little test. How many of us in our work where we're working right now would get into some kind of trouble if we started talking about Jesus at work? Did you know that this phenomenon is only in the last 10 to 15 years? You look, look if, if, this, if this sermon doesn't do anything, except get in our minds that someday soon, we are going to be in a position in our lives where talking about him will get us into trouble. 
And we have to decide if we're prepared to accept that persecution. Because what are we if we don't talk about him? Who are we if not his children? Now, there's more examples in, in the Bible of godly civil disobedience, but to be honest, they're rare. They have to be in the light of what Paul said in this passage and the circumstances in which they were living. But Paul says something here. When he says we glorify in our sufferings, we know that they uh, produce perseverance and character and character hope. This hope does not put us to shame. Now listen, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, that's a key part of that whole equation. You can survive the persecution. You can survive uh, persevering. Why? Because God is prepared to make real his love into your hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. When you need him most in the middle of your trial, your perseverance, when you need him most, he is to be found. And he's not to be found in a theoretical way like, well, you know, God is really, he'll, he'll get me through this somehow. You know, I, just, I, just, I just have to choose to believe. Well, yeah, you have to choose to believe. But you're not believing simply that things will turn out okay. You're believing that he's there to give you his love through the Holy Spirit in the middle of your crisis. I've been through a lot of stress lately. And family stuff. I don't sleep a lot. I wake up in the night worrying. It's my nature. I worry for a living. And in the middle of the night when I can't go back to sleep and I'm just worrying and worrying and worrying and I say to him, I need to hear your voice. I just need contact from you. I don't care what you say. You can correct me. I mean, I don't care what you say. I just need to hear your voice. I need to know we're making contact. And he says some little simple thing like, it's okay, I'm here. I mean, it's not like a good sermon he preached. And there wasn't a lot of Bible references. There's just him saying, it's okay, I'm here. I love you. I haven't forgotten about you. And then I'm able to sleep. And in crisis, we need this contact with him more than we need oxygen, because it is oxygen. He is the God who has poured out his love in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. And if you need it, call out to him and wait and hunger. God, make your love real to me because I need to know you're here. I need to know you're making sense of this while I persevere in something that doesn't seem fair or right. But here's the problem. Because of our culture of disrespect, because of our human nature which defaults towards self-will and comfort, 
we need to take this chapter very seriously. We need to remember Paul's words that he leaves us with. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. There is nothing secular authorities can do to you that he cannot use for your benefit. And when he finishes that process, you will like you better than you liked you before it happened. And the person you take into heaven, the personality you take with you, you will like for eternity better than who you were on earth. And you will shine. See, all life is, is inheriting at birth a very dirty mirror. You are a dirty mirror. I am a dirty mirror. And I spend my life polishing the mirror. And the grit and the sandpaper and all that other stuff and the cleaning stuff that polishes this mirror. See, it's not a glass mirror. Sadly, it's a metal mirror. Maybe it's a bronze mirror. In my case, it's a lead mirror. <laughs> the only part of me that really reflects well is here. See, life is a process of having your mirror polished. And it's not, it's not the nice stuff that polishes your mirror. It's the submission that's difficult that polishes your mirror. And when you get to heaven, all you are is a mirror. You're either a mirror that reflects his beauty perfectly or as well as is possible, or you're still a dirty mirror. And how much you enjoy heaven and enjoy him depends on the quality of the mirror you took with you into heaven. Is this, is this illustration working? Are you getting it? So rather than run from the polishing, why don't we say, this polishing is going to cause me to enjoy my eternity far better than I ever could without this polishing. I'm hating every minute of this. Thank you. Please finish soon. Go on to the watering phase where you just, you know, shine with it and it doesn't get polished for a while. Give me a break. Throw me a bone. But don't stop doing what you have to do to make me into the person I will enjoy in heaven. Because all heaven is, is reflecting his beauty. That's it. And starting now, he gives us the Holy Spirit who shone the love of God into us. To help us through this process. But he didn't promise us an easy life. Put this in your fridge. In this life you will have trouble. That's a promise from Jesus. I've never seen it on a fridge yet. But he can take your submission and your humility and he can turn it into something absolutely marvelous that the angels are jealous of.
Let's just repent for a couple minutes here. No, no, I'm not thinking about you. I'm thinking about me. My attitude towards our government is terrible. I see all the mistakes wandering away from him, and it just makes me angry. When we choose to submit, we're not submitting to man, we're submitting to God. And we're part of God's process in our life. Let's close our eyes. Father, thank you for this unpleasant message. And I pray that you apply it to each of our lives in a way that will cause us to grow and spiritually flourish. And I pray you would show us where our attitudes are wrong and have been ungodly. I pray you would show us those people we work for, bosses, that we have trouble with, that we're frustrated by, that we're disrespectful of, that we talk behind their back, that we roll our eyes when they speak, God, convict us of all those moments of disrespect because it's ultimately distrust of you in our lives. And Father, I pray for each one of us that you'll begin to show us how you're using authority in our lives to refine us. Show us the process and show us what to do and what attitudes you want of us. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Grow us and change us. Show us how to submit even to poor authority. We pray this all in the all-powerful and mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. If you guys want prayer...